Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this June the 8th Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio show. I'm going to start with this thought. Your limitation is only your imagination. I mean, really think about that today, especially if there's something you've been wanting to do and it seems so hard to accomplish no matter what you've tried. Your limitation is only your imagination. Maybe it's time to think up something different, something new. Again, welcome to this Saturday, June the 8th, off the shelf, and you are listening to the winning book radio show. There is still time for you to tell your friends, your colleagues, book lovers, and for today's topic, somebody who might be wrestling with a, a big topic right now is burnout. That is a very big topic. They actually have labeled it a medical condition now, and it can sneak up on you. You cannot think that that's what you're starting to go through until sometimes it's too late. So if you know somebody who might be dealing with that, they might be in the early stages of it, again, anxiety, burnout, or they just love books and they want to live their best life, there's still time for you to go Ping them, IM them, phone, text them, and tell them to dial in to Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio. And the listener dial in is 347-994-3490. Again, that's 347-994-3490. Would love for those you care about to gain what our special guest shares on the show this morning. Well, before we launch into the show, you know, you guys, I asked you, we've been 14 years on the air. This book has not, I'm working on two new ones, so I haven't done this for 14 years, certainly, but I asked, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? I, I love mystery stories, and I try to figure out why somebody did something, who did it, and again, I want to know the motive before the the show, the author, reveals it. And mysteries, of course, romance, number one, but mysteries, they hold their own when it comes to movies and books because there is a great interest in that. So if you love mysteries, if you also value relationships and not just romantic relationships, there is a soulmate relationship in Love Pour Over Me, but there's also a complicated father-son relationship, which I hope what goes on in the story between this father, he raises his son by himself, and he's he's the only child. I hope what happens helps some people, particularly people who grew up in a home with an alcoholic parent, that it helps them to begin to heal. That will really bring me so much joy. So and and there are five uh, guys they meet on college uh, college in Pennsylvania, and their their friendship lasts a lifetime. But there are two of them that might potentially be involved in a murder. So I encourage you, if you like mystery, you like romance, and you especially value relationships, to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me right now. You can click over to Barnes & Noble, who just got picked up by a hedge fund yesterday, but you can click over to Barnes & Noble or Amazon. You can pick over to iTunes. It used to be at iTunes, but we know they just shut down. But you can pick over to Walmart and get a copy, ebook or print, of Love Pour Over Me. Do yourself, gift gift yourself with a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. And now, let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. 
And this morning's off-the-shelf guest is Andrea Hall. Now, Andrea is a writer, a trial attorney. She's maybe our third attorney on off-the-shelf. So she's a writer, trial attorney, public speaker, and coach. She is committed to helping people discover their passions and walk in their destiny. And I really think that's the only way to be at peace here. And for six years, she has offered private coaching sessions to people who want to move past obstacles and realize their dreams. What what an amazing gift. All that said, it was a brain tumor that served as Andrea's wake-up call. What what a like a cannot-ignore wake-up call. And products that Andrea creates include cards and jewelry. Books that she has written are Touched by a Horse and Living Your Joy. We talk about this so much. Again, I was talking about burnout. It's like it's really big right now, that topic of burnout. And if you live your joy, you can avoid that. It's a painful experience, but you can avoid it. You can check Andrea out online at WithersWhisper.com, W-I-T-H-E-R-S, W-H-I-S-P-E-R.com. Again, W-I-T-H-E-R-S, W-H-I-S-P-E-R.com, WithersWhisper.com. Let us give Andrea a warm off-the-shelf books talk radio welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf, Andrea. Hi, thank you for having me this morning. It is a pleasure, and I, you know, when I do, I tell our listeners, 14 years doing this, um, I learn something from every guest. I, I've never, ever done an interview, and I don't intend to do that, but I always do. So look forward to what you share, and hopefully our listeners will be blessed. You never know what will ha- happen with somebody listening to this show this morning from what you share. The first few questions I ask every guest and the reason is I used to just jump right into the questions. And listeners emailed me and said, no, no, we want to know a little bit about the guest before you go right into the questions. So I ask every <laughs> guest these same just to give the listeners a little backstory on our guest. So, Andrea, yeah. to kick it off, could you please tell our off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? I grew up in Minot, North Dakota, Um, My parents met, uh, my dad was uh, in the military, and he met my mom, and shortly thereafter, he got out of the military there, and they uh, made a home there, and that's where I was born and raised uh, my whole life. Uh, My uh, dad was from Kentucky, and my mom was uh, raised in North Dakota, just about 30 minutes uh, from where I was actually raised, and so was very close to my grandparents there, and we lived in a so-called city. I was raised in a town of about 35,000, and uh, yeah, had two brothers and a very good life. You must, that is a small 35,000. I know where I live now, it's like about 160,000, and I consider it like a small mid-sized city, so (laughs) 35,000. It must be a town where... Everybody knows everybody, and if your parents are somebody who a lot of people know, then everybody knows there's so and so's daughter or there's so and so, there's so and so's kid. Uh, for that, uh, and then going later through 
today's interview, North Dakota, it would make sense maybe how you were attracted to your work with horses, but we can get yes. to that later. So when you were a kid, yeah. Andrea, what did you dream of becoming when you were growing up in North Dakota? What did you say when I grew up, this is what I want to be? Well, I was always very argumentative and uh, always wanted to debate everything, uh, hence I think why I ultimately uh, went to law school. There was a choice between going to law school or med school, and I was traumatized by math, um, and so I decided that uh, I was going to go to law school instead of med school. However, um, you know, that was always always my gig. Um, I knew from a very young age and was very determined what I was going to do, where I was going to go to college, all of that stuff until, you know, I got older and I had the brain tumor and things really shifted. Wow. So was, I definitely when I ask you this law, that is such a big commitment. And we've had other attorneys on here and one of them told us that a lot of it's very, I don't know, very stressful. It's just so it's the, the demanding, like going into medicine, that some attorneys, after they finish school, they realize, oops, I made a mistake. But you've put so much in that you can't turn around. That's for people who might not have somebody to talk to who's already practiced law. So I wanted to ask you, are there any other attorneys in your family who sat down and you listen to them talk about not, you know, cases for client privacy that might not talk about cases they worked on, but the career as a whole. Were, are there, were there any other practicing attorneys in your family that attracted you to that field? Actually, no. Um, my family um, was a very um, blue-collar trade school type uh, industry. Um, my mom was a hairdresser and owned her own salon. My dad was a drywall contractor and owned his own business. And so I'm actually the first uh, person on either side of my family generation-wise to have a four-year degree, let alone a master's degree. Um, my uh, uncles and um, my mom's, you know, brothers uh, were you know, businessmen and mechanics. And my dad's brother was a military man and made a career out of that. So uh, this was the first, like I said, with any sort of college education, let alone, you know, an advanced degree. So, um, you know, I didn't really have anyone necessarily to turn to, to give me advice or to steer me in a direction one way or another. I was pretty free to to do what I wanted and had very supportive parents of, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, it's your life. Uh, my parents didn't steer us in one direction or another. Uh, my, my brothers are, you know, trade school boys and, you know, are um, in the construction industry and they own their own business. So business was more of something that uh, was bred into us, if you will, versus uh, a college education. And I'm a firm believer that a piece of paper doesn't make you who you are. I think at this point in time, a college education is no different than what a high school education was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It just shows that you're uh, determined and have some sort of structure and are willing to actually complete something. 
I think at this point in time, if you're looking at getting into certain careers, if you don't have a master's degree, I mean, it just doesn't mean anything. So I think that's the, the shift that we have now as far as, you know, college education goes. However, I'm definitely a firm believer that, you know, you can have no education uh, and be very successful uh, depending on, you know, what it is that you're doing. I think it's more of a mindset and finding a niche or an industry uh, that is needed. And, you know, I think that's ultimately where value comes from in a job or a career that you have. If you are able to create something that solves a problem, and depending on the problem it solves, is where the value comes from, and that's ultimately what people are willing to pay for. And that determines mm. what what the max is they're willing to pay, right? Depending on the problem you solve, whether it's cleaning someone's house, making them dinner. In fact, I just had this conversation with somebody. I said, my time is valuable, and I don't have enough hours in the day to do everything I need to do. So it's easier for me to hire somebody that's willing to cook me three meals a week that have enough for leftovers, which makes it a minimum of six meals a week, if not seven meals a week. I said I'm willing to pay for that because in exchange, the amount of time that I spend cooking, prepping, and going to the grocery store, I can knock out other things that have a bigger value for me and bring in more money than what I'm paying for somebody to cook me meals. Uh, yeah, you know, and I've heard other people say the same thing. Whether it's home cleaning or or helping with a child, um, you, you know, a parent, you'd have to bond with your child. But some things are like I I I can focus on something else if I pay mm-hmm. somebody to, to 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 do this. But you know, when I was um, uh, Andrea, before we go into your books and your other works, what is what does a trial attorney do? That do they only work on? Certain types of cases. What what exactly? I know defense attorney, prosecutor. What does a trial attorney do? So, as a defense attorney, there's different careers that are more trial oriented, if you will. So, somebody that's in you know medical malpractice or personal injury, those people are more likely to go to trial. Same thing in the criminal arena. Somebody that's a prosecutor or a defense attorney, those people are more likely to go to trial. Somebody that's doing wills and estates, they're more likely not to go to trial, right? Because they sit in an office and draft wills, right? And then, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, somebody passes away. And unless somebody's arguing about the estate, they're not going to go to trial. So there's avenues in the legal field that don't require, I shouldn't say don't require, but are less likely to go to trial. And so people that aren't comfortable speaking and being in front of people and debating and arguing pick different types of uh, um, careers, if you will, or areas to focus in the law that don't put them in that position. You know, if you work at a company and you're giving legal advice, You may not be the trial lawyer, you know. So as a trial lawyer and being a criminal defense attorney specifically, I spent, you know, 14 years of my career in trial. Uh, Some years were better uh, in the numbers, if you will, of the times I was in trial because not every case goes to trial. However, as a criminal defense attorney, I mean, that's ultimately – 
potentially where it's going to go. If you don't reach a resolution, you're going to trial. You don't have another option. Mm. Interesting. I thank you for what you what you shared. We hear a lot about I wanted to ask you two more questions about that career field yeah. before we start switching over to your other work, coaching and writing uh, and helping people get, at least recognize and start to move toward their destiny. But based yeah. on your experience, 14 years as a child attorney, would you say we always hear that the justice system is fair, equitable, is justice is blind, <laughs> not biased? Would you say that is the case? Or if not, you know, we know it's absolutely not. We all have biases. We don't want to admit it. Every last one of us. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Oh, I would definitely say it's probably getting worse. Um, unfortunately, um, I have seen way too much over my career with what has happened in the uh, criminal justice system. It's just absolutely insane um, how people are ultimately treated uh, and what is observed, if you will. And I know a lot of people want to say it's based on race. However, to me, um, it's not always based on race. I mean, I've had white men uh, be accused of things that you're like, how is this possible when you look at the evidence that they have? And then I've had situations where, you know, you've got somebody that has all of this evidence and the police are going, yeah, we're not going to do anything about it. And I go, I had less evidence on a case that you prosecuted and now we have an overwhelming amount of evidence and you're not going to prosecute? It makes absolutely no sense. Um, And I tell my clients from the very beginning, you know, you're guilty until I prove you innocent. I don't care what the Constitution says. Uh, and there is no justice. It's just us. And it is very difficult once you've been accused of something. And, and part of that was because of the area that I specialized in. So I specialized in sex offenses and domestic violence, which typically was a man being charged Uh, Sometimes it was a woman. However, I would say 99% of my cases involved a man being charged uh, of domestic violence or sex assault. And it's very difficult, especially even now with this huge, huge Me Too movement, to say that they're innocent until proven guilty. You walk into a courtroom, the jury hears that they've been charged with sex assault on a child, and most of the people are appalled, right? Well, yes, no one, no one thinks that assaulting a child is okay. However, like you have to hear the evidence and people go, well, a kid wouldn't do that and just accuse somebody. Mm, yeah, they would, especially if there's an ugly divorce going on, especially if they've been previously sexually assaulted. You have to look at so many things, but the problem is, is once they hear those charges, it's very difficult for them to be open-minded and go, okay, I'm going to listen to all of this before I make a decision. Same thing with, you know, females. It's very easy for a female who's got buyer's remorse in the morning to say, I was raped. I didn't come home. My boyfriend's now mad. Um, I was late. My parents are questioning where I was. I had too much to drink and I don't remember. Uh, And so now it must not have been consensual. So, the list goes on and on, and especially now, like I said, with this Me Too movement and everybody pushing, 
We've swung the pendulum from one side to the other. Now you look at some female and it's like, I've been sexually assaulted. You're not able to get away with some of the things that you got away with before because now the laws have changed and it's so strict, as well as we have these kids with cell phones, iPhones, whatever, um, that you know are taking pictures of their genitalia and texting it to somebody. Well, now they've just distributed child pornography. Well, a 14-year-old doesn't think in their mind, I've just distributed uh, pornography. They're thinking, I just took a picture of my stuff and sent it to my girlfriend or vice versa, right? Well, then two weeks later, when the wind has changed directions and they're no longer dating that person or they're mad at them, they've now shared it with the football team, the cheerleading squad, whatever, and now they've distributed pornography, you know? And so now at 14, they're looking at registering as a sex offender for the rest of their life. Wow. Wow. What can so we do? So it's little things uh, like that. Go ahead. What, what can what what can we do, regardless of what? I, one writer I met at a writers conference. She actually was in prison for five years. I love that book, American Marriage. How many people go to jail, and they didn't do what they were accused of doing? But she was accused of doing a robbery. She wasn't even in the city, same city, and she stood her ground. And eventually, the person who really did it, she met him. In, in in prison, but her attorney would not give up, would not give up five years her life, and she finally got out. She wasn't even in a city when the crime happened. But all that said, how can we improve the justice system? We know we have biases. Uh, we, we, the most we can do is accept we have them, continue to try to break through our own biases. But how, how can we do this? So, so many people who didn't even commit the crime and they go to jail for years and years for something they didn't even do. Well, I can tell you based on my experience in the criminal justice system, a lot of times that comes from the police and prosecution withholding evidence. Uh, it comes from, you know, the judge denying motions on behalf of the defense. And so then the jury doesn't hear all of the evidence or the facts and circumstances of the case because either A, it was never provided to the defense, or B, the judge precluded that information from coming in, or C, the jury just didn't get it. And that does happen uh, because there's so much stuff going on, and the jury instructions are sometimes very confusing. They're confusing enough for us lawyers who argue over them, let alone a layperson who's sitting in the back room who's maybe paid attention the full time during the trial, maybe just is like, screw it, I want to go home. I'm over this. You know, it's hot. I don't like the food they're serving us, whatever, right? Um, they don't like the defense attorney. They don't like the defendant. You know, they don't have to have a reason. Now, obviously, they're supposed to follow the law, and they're supposed to show that beyond a reasonable doubt, they believe that the elements of the crime have been met. But you know, I've sat in a jury uh, when I was 18, and the conversations that are had in those rooms and how people reach conclusions and decisions would absolutely amaze people because, you know, I've sat in courtrooms, tried cases where I went, there's no way the jury can convict, and they convict. I've sat in other cases where I've looked at my client and went, are you prepared to go to jail? Because I'm pretty sure you're going to go to jail. And they come back and they go, not guilty. 
you know. So oh, yeah. I've I've seen it happen both ways, and because it's such a sacred place, and you're not allowed to really talk to those people uh, unless they want to share information. And then if the information that they shared comes out that something inappropriate happened, you have a huge obstacle and burden to get the court to say, okay, we're going to do something about this because you're invading the province of the jury and the decision that they made and the secrecy behind the closed doors of what happened. Mm. There's just so many variables, so many variables. And, 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 I guess the most, the most well, I, I think the video cameras that people take, oh, yeah. they can have a negative. But I think like police brutality, years ago they would have said, I didn't do it. Like, I, I didn't hit that person. I didn't. So in some ways that I think helps. People can film it and say, oh, no, this is exactly what happened. <laughs> that can help. You know, and I am a, yeah, and I am a firm believer in the body cams because I've had it both ways. I've had it where the client says X, Y, and Z happens, and of course none of that's in the police report. And then I get the dash cam, and you hear the officer saying the the stuff that the client said he said. Um, you know, the officer being inappropriate, saying, you know, I hope I get this guy. And I'm I'm in fact I had one where this guy got pulled over for a DUI and. Right before he got pulled over, you could hear the officer saying, this better be a bust because this is the third one I've pulled over tonight and they were, you know, sober. So I better get one. So, you know, he was gunning for my client. You know, he said that, you know, he failed to change lanes and signal. Well, it clearly showed all of that on the dash cam. So he blatantly lied in his police report that my client didn't do X, Y, and Z. And it was clearly on the dash cam. Now, I had clients that said, you know, cops did X, Y, and Z, and I watched the footage, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to give this to you, and you um, review it, and then we'll have a conversation. And then they go, okay, you know, I was completely inappropriate, and I guess I was drunker than I thought, and I better take a deal. <laughs> oh, Yeah. So when you, I think the videos again, and then if you have your own cell phone, if the, if the, especially if the cops don't know you have it, you do have some data that they can't, you can bring it out later. So I think that, I think that helps, but yeah, we just have to keep educating people. And again, just because somebody said they accused you of something doesn't mean that you actually did do what they accused you of. So that's very easy to accuse somebody. And thank you for the work you do there. Now you do other you do other works to help people. So I want to begin as we launch into the next part of the interview. Who or what inspired you to write books? You go from being an attorney to writing books. Where did that inspiration come from? Well, you know, as an attorney, you do typically a lot of writing, motions, things of that nature, and. In my career, I found that so many people did not understand what was going on in the criminal justice system, specifically around sex offenses. So that was the first book I wrote was Sex and Justice, and it was on uh, basically the nuts and bolts of the sex offense from the time you may or may not be accused of something all the way through an appeal through the, you know, United States Supreme Court in the hopes of 
educating people and understanding, you know, if you're accused of this, this is how your life is potentially going to change. And if you're convicted, this is definitely how it's going to change. Just because I had so many clients that would have lawyers that didn't explain things to them. And then, you know, they'd be on probation and go, how come I'm not able to see my kids? Because you pled to a sex offense. Well, the kids weren't involved in it didn't have anything to do with the kids or child pornography. It doesn't matter. That's what the rules are. How come I'm not able to ride the bus or how come I'm not able to go to the grocery store or go fishing? You might run into a child, you know, so the list goes on and on of things. So that was my first book. Um, And then when um, I got sick and I decided that I was probably going to leave my career and I became certified as an equine gestalt coach, I had the opportunity to then, um, co-author in these two new books that just came out uh, last September, and I took that opportunity to do that. I was going to ask you next. Now, you had a great career as an attorney, uh, 14 years. Why? I, I was going to ask you, why did you decide to switch to writing, coaching, and working working with horses? Some people would have gone through what you went through, perhaps received enlightenment, and gone back into their other career fields and maybe approached it differently or something like that. Why did you decide to totally switch careers? So I was, uh, prior to the brain tumor, I was in the middle of a five-day jury trial and my 18-month-old puppy died. And it was a huge wake-up call for me because I said, what am I killing myself for? Because at the end of the day, typically my clients, don't care about me. They only care if I'm going to keep them out of jail. I don't get Christmas cards. I don't get baby announcements. Nobody sends me Christmas gifts. None of that. I'm lucky if they pay their bill. And so I said, you know what? I think I need to take some time away. And this is nothing that they teach you in law school at all. It's about grinding it out. So I stepped away from my career for the summer and I played with my nephew and I had a blast. And it was the first time that I had actually decompressed and allowed my stress level to actually completely drop. And when the summer was over and I realized I was going to have to go back to work, I really noticed how my body had physically changed. The minute I anticipated I was going to have to go to court, my heart rate changed, my breathing pattern changed. I got into this fight or flight mode and I was very argumentative and aggressive and I said wow like what is going on and so it was the first time in my life where I said what am I going to do because I don't know if I can go back to this and so I started this soul searching journey at that point in time to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up um Like I said earlier in this conversation, prior to that, I always knew what I wanted to do, where I was going to go, what degree I was going to get. And this was the first time that I had, like, no clue what I was going to do. And so for the next three years, I really was searching and following breadcrumbs of what's next for me. And I got introduced to some horse work through someone else. And when I was there, I realized that my world disappeared. I could relax and become grounded and centered and my breathing pattern changed and I could be at the barn for hours and it felt like five minutes. And so I said, this is what I want to do. How can I combine my love for helping people, coaching them 
and my love for horses and make it a career. And that's when I then found Melissa Pierce and I got certified as an equine gestalt coach. And I then decided I was going to move into this other career. And then, like I said, I had the opportunity to write about my love for horses and how the horses have helped me heal. Oh, my. You know what I have to ask you next? Why do you think, I really admire what you've done. Why do you think for you the switch, career switch, worked? Because some people try to do things and then they, it doesn't work and they have to go back to something, even something they really, they know they really don't want to do. Why do you think it worked for you? Well, two things. First of all, change is never easy for anyone. And so it's more comfortable to stay in what is constant, even if it's miserable. And this is what I tell women who are in domestic violence situations as well. You know, it's a constant. I know he's going to come home. I know he's going to drink. I know he's going to beat me, whatever, right? That's a given. The fear of the unknown of how am I going to pay my bills? He's going to take the car away from me. Where am I going to live? I don't have a job. The fear of that is greater than the fear of being beaten because that's a constant. I know I have shelter. I know I have food on the table. All of that, right? Even though it's miserable, it's constant. The fear of the other side is greater. So until the fear of the other side is less than the fear of what's going on in the home, they won't leave. And obviously there's other things that go along with that, self-esteem and things of that nature. However, um, it's the same thing with a career change. Now, did I just wake up and go, I'm going to leave? You know, I went to seven years of school. I've built this career. I, I didn't just wake up one day and go, yep, I'm done. I'm leaving. It was a process. And for me, once I found out I had the brain tumor, that was really the two by four upside the head because I said, I'm physically killing myself. I am not able to stay in this profession because I'm physically killing myself. The minute I found out I had a brain tumor, I came home and I grabbed my Louise Hayes book, How to Heal Your Life. And I realized that the brain tumor, in my opinion, based on reading the book, was created from me living in my head. And so I said, unless something changes, I am going to continue to get physically sick. And even after I had the brain surgery, I had the two more, three more tumors manifest in my body. They were all benign, but they kept coming up. And so I said, I am not able to stay in this adversarial system because it's killing me and it's killing my body. And unless something changes, I'm going to die. And so I said, I have to do something different. And I think You know, you talked about it at the beginning of your podcast about how people go to school and then they go, maybe this isn't what I wanted to do. However, because all they have is these student loans or every uh, person in their family has been a lawyer, they they do it whether they want to or not. And so they end up staying in a career where they're miserable because they don't feel like there's another way out. So that's what I help them figure out is like, there is another way out and maybe you're going to have to go back to eating ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly sandwich 
However, you're not going to be out on the streets and homeless. It mm-hmm. it will happen. And it, it is a process, right? Like, am I making the same amount of money that I did as a 14-year uh, career trial defense attorney? No. However, it takes time. You know, the average time of growing a business is five years. So you have to jump off the cliff. And unfortunately, people want to jump off the cliff and don't have a safety net in place and don't have a plan. And so then they go, well, I have to go back. Yes, it's scary yeah. and it's unknown. However, you're either living or you're dying. And when you're in a career that you're absolutely miserable over or you're in a job that's just over broke, you're miserable. So you why would you continue are, to stay there? Yeah, you know, there are millions of people <laughs> Uh, millions, millions in that boat. Millions, millions of people in that boat. And when you say it's a process, there's so. I have a lot of other questions I want to ask you. I never get to all the questions, but trying to give our <laughs> listeners as much as I as I can that that will help to help them. So you 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 get this wake up call, but how did you get started working with horses? It's like you you go from being an attorney. To writing to how did you get started then? That's to me that's such a huge leap to go. It's just so different. How did you get started working with horses? Well, I've always had an affinity for horses. When I was a kid, my mom's uh, side of the family was farmers and had horses, and so if we'd go and visit, that was the first thing I wanted to do was go ride horses or be with the horses. And that never went away. I always had this strong desire and attraction towards them. And um, after I graduated from law school, I moved to Colorado and I, you know, leased a horse and all of that fun stuff. And I just continued to have this connection and desire to be with them. And the opportunity, like I said, presented itself when I was on this journey of figuring out what I was going to do next in my life. And I did some work that involved horses, and I said, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. And then I sought out uh, how to get certified in what I wanted to do, and I found Melissa's program and ultimately got certified and went through a two-year certification program with her. And and now my herd and I, you know, work with um, lawyers and other individuals high-end executives that are stressed out figuring out, you know, do I stay or do I go? And if I stay, how do I create balance? And if I go, you know, what's going to make my heart sing again? uh, And, you know, these are people in fields and at levels that a lot of us think, oh, man, their life must be, just like when you were a trial attorney, People thinking, oh man, her life must be swell. They think your, your your life is perfect, but this person could be on the verge of burnout or dealing with a lot of anxiety at their level. Like I had somebody tell me years ago when I was working in financial services, uh, they said stay below the radar. They said once you get up so high, you become like a target, and it it just the air gets real thin up. <laughs> <laughs> someone told me that, but that's the, but that's the they're at a level that most people are aspiring to get to, and they're, 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 people want to get there. So you've lived it, 
you work with clients, you've been there, done that, not just something you've researched, you've actually lived it. So could you please give us an overview, the work you do, Life with the Horses, the book itself, if you could give us an overview of Touched by a Horse. Sure. Well, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? You know, and I even my horses literally They'll stick their head through the fence to eat the grass on the other side. I'm like, you have grass right in front of you, yet you're sticking your head through the fence <laughs> to get to the grass over here. Um, so it's very true. Uh, you know, I I remember walking into a room and having a conversation, and somebody says, what do you do? And you go, I'm a lawyer. And people just go, oh, like you've arrived. And it's yes. like, you know what? I put my pants on the same way you do every day, one leg at a time. And even though, you know, I have this piece of paper that says I can, you know, legally argue with somebody and you pay me a lot of money for that, there, there's lots of things behind the scenes that go on. And our profession is running around with its hair on fire and no one's doing anything about it. There's only eight states that require any sort of mental health and wellness continuing education credits. And where I live in Colorado is not one of those states. And so it's very difficult to break into the industry and say, look, people, we need to do something. We've got very high suicide rates, drug and alcohol abuse, and the mm-hmm. list goes on and on in our profession of the the negative things that are going on. And I think it, it's going to change, but it's going to take time because, like I said, it's such a new concept. They don't teach things like that in law school, and it's all about grinding it out. And so that's you know, one of the things that I've definitely learned through my training and certification through the horses, you know, I've cleaned up my unfinished business from my past and healed my traumas from my past so that I can move forward. And we all have trauma. Uh, An ounce of pain is an ounce of pain, and it doesn't matter what it is. And like I said to you, at the beginning of this interview, I had the option to go to med school or law school. And because I was so traumatized by math, I chose to go to law school. Um, Was I good at both and could have been either or? Absolutely. However, I can still remember to this day being in third grade, standing next to chairs, doing flashcards about ready to vomit and pee my pants and, you know, going, I'm never going to be good at math and then having to sit down And now to this day, the minute somebody says math, I can guarantee you pretty much the first thing out of my mouth is I'm not good at math. I don't do math. You need to find somebody else that does it. Uh, Just because I, I struggle with math. And it's because I had that moment where I was traumatized around math. I mean, I can give you any number of examples of things that have caused trauma in my life that made me who I am today. By the time you are five years old, you have 50% of your thoughts, your beliefs, and your values. 50%. So by the time you're 18, you have 95% of your thoughts, your beliefs, and your values. That only leaves 5% for you to change anything or add anything new to your life before you die. So you have to look at what happens in those first five years of your life, as well as, you know, the next, um, what, 12 years, 13 years, uh, till you get to 18. Um, and look at that and then say, okay, who was the influence in your life? I have clients all the time that go, oh my gosh, when I was five years old, this incident happened. 
And that's the story that's running me. You know, I had a client wow. who's actually a lawyer that changed careers um, in the legal profession. She started a new business and she's been struggling. And she was just not able to put her finger on why it was. And in one of our sessions, she went, oh, my God, I get it. Like when I was five years old, my dad was a brain surgeon. We're standing in the kitchen, and I can hear him yelling at a doctor saying, if you don't get it right, someone's going to die. So the story she plays subconsciously in her head every time she goes take a, take a step forward in her business is, if you don't get this right, someone's going to die. Oh, now, yeah. literally, is someone going to die in her business? Absolutely not. She's a mediator. No one's going to die. However, whatever she does consciously, subconsciously, that's what keeps coming up for her, and she had no clue. So now that she knows that that's happened, we heal that. And she's able to move forward in her business because that's no longer running her subconsciously. Mm. You know that, and that that kind of work when you're when you're with somebody you trust. And that's the first thing a therapist, a counselor, they build that trust is, uh, and they help you to get through something you didn't even know was there, and you've been struggling with it for decades. That is, you can't even put a price a price on that. Can you describe the process, though, of working with horses to help a human heal? How does that, how does that help? So horses are very in the moment, which us human beings typically are not in the moment. We're run by our cell phones, our calendars, our, you know, uh, email. And so we're not even in the moment of what's going on. I mean, if you just sat on the sidewalk and watched any given day, people walking to and from the subway, buses, whatever, just sat there and watched, right? People watched. I mean, Vegas is a, a great place to do it, right? People are so engrossed in what's going on in their phone and email and, and the list goes on and on, right, that if their heart didn't automatically beat and their lungs didn't automatically take in oxygen, people would be falling over dead because they're not in their body. They're in their head most of the time. And so the horses get you to be in the present moment. They get you to turn your phone off. They get you to get away from your calendar and email and all that stuff. And so they, allow you to be in that moment as well as the horses feed off of energy. So they're very much a lie detector. So if I put you in the round pen and I said, and I'm just going to do a dumbed down version. I said to you, what color is your shirt? And you had on a black shirt and you said your shirt was white. Energetically, you would not be in alignment. So my horse would not want to join up with you. Wow. However, if you said my shirt is black the horse would know that that was your truth and you were speaking your truth and the horse would want to line up with you. Now, like I said, that's a dumbed down version. I wouldn't be asking you something like that, but let's just say, I said, how is your relationship with your significant other, husband, wife, whatever that is, partner? And you said, oh, it's great. And my horse didn't move. I would know that you were not speaking your truth. Now, consciously, you might think your relationship's great, Yet subconsciously, you know that there's a problem. And so mm. even though that's what came out of your mouth, that's not what would be the truth. And so therefore, my horse wouldn't move. And so eventually, the client gets it. They're like, why isn't the horse coming to me? 
you know, wow. and I'm a believer in the coaching style that I don't hold the answers. I get to hold up a mirror for you to see the reflection and find the answers within. So the horse allows them to get to that space to finally figure out what it is. I heard somebody else who worked with horses to help people to heal. That is, and so the, I think the good thing about that is not it's not judgmental. Is not nobody passing oh, judgment. Nobody telling what's right or wrong. It's this is just it's it's just naturally. And so even anything hidden in you can come to the surface, and then you can make a choice. Do you want to continue mm-hmm. on the way you've been going, or do you want to change? So, Andrea, what do you mean by living your joy? So you do your work with horses and other work that you've done, and you're trying to help somebody get to joy. So what, do you, what does it mean to live your joy? Well, and I think that is a definition that's personal. So for me, um, you know, living my joy is getting to be with my horses and being in the flow energetically and being in the present moment and out of my head and into my heart and into my body and having financial freedom and the ability to do the things I want and not being run by my to-do list and my calendar. Have I arrived? No. (laughs) Are there some days that are better than others? Absolutely. However, I'm definitely a firm believer that as long as you have two feet on this ground, that you have a lesson to learn. And when your lessons are complete, you will, you know, be gone. So there are days that I'm definitely living my joy. And there are days (laughs) that I'm on my to-do list and on my calendar. Uh, So, it's definitely a work in progress and an ebb and flow. And, uh, you know, I am too constantly uh, working with a coach because I'm wanting to constantly improve my life. So, you know, people say to me all the time, well, I don't need a coach or, you know, I don't really need that. And I was like, you're right. You don't need it. However, my question to you is, do you want it? Uh, Because, to me, you're either living or dying. And I would say for the most part, most people uh, in our society are dying. They're going through the flow uh, or, uh, um, you know, going through the process. You know, they're going mm-hmm. to a job that they're just over broke at. They're not happy at yet. Again, like we talked about, you know, it's a constant. I get a paycheck. It comes every two weeks. You know, I go home on Friday, blah, blah, blah. The list goes on and on, Right yet there's this burning desire inside them to do something different, yet the fear of the unknown, not having a paycheck, not having health insurance. I mean, you know how many people say to me, well, I have to have this job because they pay for my health insurance. And because I've been self-employed my whole life and my parents, you know, own their own business, I don't know what it's like to work for somebody and have a 401k plan or for someone to pay for my health insurance. I just go, what do you mean? Like you just budget yeah. that. You just yeah. put that in your budget. So that means you don't go out to eat twice a month or whatever that is for you. But I just said it, that doesn't make sense because I've never had that. So when people go, well, that's what's holding me back. I go, How, what? Like that's yeah. the only reason you're staying there. Like let's figure out how many times a week you go to Starbucks or how many packs of cigarettes you smoke or how many happy hours you go to. 
and there you go. There's your money for your health insurance. Yeah. If you freelance, like when I freelance, you just put it away, pay your quarterly, or or I pay my own monthly. It's not that hard to pay your own health insurance. A family, it might be, and it's higher the premiums, but it's it's not. It's what, like you said earlier, it's what we grow accustomed to, and and, so, yeah. and somehow we have to. Have you found any, um, Andrea? As we come down less than ten minutes, have you found any tips that you could share with our listeners? on easy ways to change a habit, to just break with things that we think are so hard to do, like some women will stay in a bad relationship because they just they can't imagine that they could survive on their own. When, when millions, if not billions, of women are surviving on their own, how do you break out of that? Your own mind's holding you prisoner. Your own mind's holding you captive. How do you break out of that so you can change? Well... First of all, it's to, you know, look at doing one step at a time. I think so many people look at the big picture and they get overwhelmed, right? Like somebody wants to lose weight and they go, why 50 pounds to lose? And so they keep looking at the 50 pounds. How am I going to ever lose the 50 pounds? Okay, well, let's break that down. We've got 52 weeks in a year, right? So let's just lose a pound a week. What does that look like? Is a pound a week a doable? And when you break it ultimately down and they go, oh, wow, I could lose a pound a week. That's not that hard, you know. What do I have to change? Great. Okay, I'm going to stop drinking pop. I bet if you stop drinking pop or you go from three sodas a day down to one, let's let's just look at that. So it's A, taking small steps because you don't eat an elephant in one bite, right? It's one bite at a time. So that's the first thing I would suggest. The second thing I would suggest is finding somebody that will either support you or hold you accountable and see you bigger than you see yourself. Because most times, whatever it is, whether it's staying in a crappy relationship or it's not going to the gym and exercising or it's eating the, you know, Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks coffee, whatever it is, if you have somebody that you can be held accountable to, that's why the TV, the reality shows like The Biggest Loser and stuff work because they're going to have to step a, step on a scale at the end of the week and it's going to be on national TV. And they don't want to, you know, be embarrassed. Now, if they were at home and they didn't have anybody to be accountable to, that's one of the reasons why like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig works, right? Once a week, you're going to have to go in. There's a coach there. You're going to have to get on the scale. And when you haven't lost any weight or you've gained, they're going to start asking you questions. So you're going to have to be accountable to, yeah, this week wasn't so good. I ate a donut. I ate 10. You know, um, I had a couple cocktails, whatever it is for you. So find somebody that is able to support you and see you bigger than you see yourself because. At some point in time, something's going to get in the way, an obstacle, um, you know, you yourself, whatever it is. So I would, th- I would say those are probably the two biggest things. And the last thing is, is that I think it's harder for women than it is for men, and that is to make yourself a priority, whatever it is that you want to work on. Um, you know, I know for me, 
I can be really good for, you know, weeks or months of working out and I slip up and then, you know, I'm not getting up an hour before everybody else in the household is. And before I know it, that extra hour is where I needed to journal, meditate, run. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have time to squeeze that into the rest of my day. And women are famous for, you know, letting their cup get drained and not filling it back up. I don't know too many men who go, you know what, I'm not going to go play golf today because my wife really needs me to do the laundry or the kids need to be picked up from school. You know, no. They're like, hey, honey, I'm going to play golf. And she goes, oh, you are? Okay. Or, hey, honey, I'm going to the gym. And she goes, well, what about dinner? What about the laundry? Okay, yeah. No, they don't, right? Because they're so focused on the one thing where women are multitaskers. And so they look around as they walk in the room and they go, Oh my God, the laundry hasn't been picked up. Oh my God, the kids' toys are over there. Oh my God, dinner needs to be made. Oh my goodness, the plants need to be watered. Oh my God, when was the last time I dusted? Where he walks into the room <laughs> and all he is is, what, is dinner ready? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, oh my goodness. Get easily distracted. Yep. Yeah. It, it, you know, and if it was just one straight linear line, with with uh, the last question before you share how our listeners can get copies of your books and get in touch with you if they okay. want to work with you as a coach, whether you do online or offline services, I wanted to ask you if joy is so easy to find. They say it's all around us: peace, love, joy. Why do so many of us struggle to find it? Well. And I'm just going to speak for me, um, and I'm, I'm sure it will be applicable to a lot of people. So I think it's easy to get caught up in day-to-day life, for one. We are such a type A high-driven society, right? Like if you go to most other countries, they're very relaxed. They take siestas. You know, people uh, leave work early. Uh, Some businesses are even shut down during the lunch hour, um, where in America we're very driven, money-oriented, grind it out, education, make it to the top of the corporate ladder, right? Um, And people think that's what's going to get them happiness. I've seen the poorest of people be more happy than a millionaire at the top of the hill because... For me, I found that the harder I grinded it out in order to make more money, the more miserable I was because the more money you have, then the more expensive things you end up buying, which then requires you to make more money, right? And that's (laughs) part of the profession that I'm in. So we're keeping up with the Joneses. So I'm not able to leave my career because my house payment is $10,000 a month and I'm driving a Mercedes and a BMW and those car payments are $1,000 a month and my kids are in private school and my wife is at tennis lessons and and the list goes on and on, right? So I'm not able to leave my career because of all this over here. And I go, okay, well, let's just say money wasn't an object and you could leave your career. Like what would you do that would bring you happiness and joy? And the money can come it may not be here today or tomorrow, yet you can be there. And this is what I talked about at the beginning of the call, right? Like 
what problem do you solve and how much value does that hold for the for the person you're solving the problem for because that's what people will pay for hence why lawyers make a lot of money right because people have a four alarm fire they're going to prison potentially for the rest of their life so they're willing uh, yeah. to pay for that yes absolutely absolutely uh we're, we we I, I have so enjoyed having you on, and and oh, I, I have so you. many other questions I want to ask you. But <laughs> can you tell our listeners? Do you offer online services? We know you offer offline. How can people get in touch with you if they want to work with you? And particularly if they don't live in Colorado, how can somebody um, uh, get, get you know benefit from your services if they can do it online or offline? How could they get yep. in touch with you? So I do coaching with people all over the world. They don't have to uh, be here in Colorado. Uh, If they do want to work with uh, me and the horses, they have to come to Colorado, and and people do fly in, spend a weekend with me, um, and enjoy the beautiful Colorado scenery and, and do extensive deep work with me. I have retreats and things of that nature that people can come and experience as well. However, yeah, the coaching does not have to uh, be locally here in Colorado, and even even my clients that I coach with here in Colorado, I typically don't physically meet with. It's all over the phone, Skype, things of that nature. I offer free 30-minute exploratory sessions where we talk about what that looks like and how I can support them. My website has lots of free information. They can find uh, my books there as well at WithersWhisper.com. Okay. Thank you, Andrea. Oh, my goodness, and what a beautiful spirit that you have. So there's so many other things you could have delved into. You're very (laughs) welcome. So to our off-the-shelf listeners, again, Touch by a Horse, these are just some of Andrea's books, not all of them, and Living Your Joy, which we just barely touched on. But you can check her out online at WithersWhisper.com. She does offer – she does – offer virtual services if you want to do coaching, but if you want to work with their horses, and I've heard of other uh, therapists who view horses and it's been very effective, you would have to go to Colorado, but she does offer some virtual services. And again, our website is W-I-T-H-E-R-S W-H-I-S-P-E-R WithersWhisper.com We want to thank Andrea, and you can get a copy of of her books as well, and though you might find those beneficial. We want to thank her for all her work as a defense trial attorney and her work working with horses and coaching and counseling and and the writings that she does. And thank each of you for tuning in here to Off the Shelf. Remember, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m., Eastern Standard Time. Andrea, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.